All right, book of Amos. Book of Amos. Sunday night, we worked on the book of Amos. This is like part 19, I think, now in our study of the book of Amos. And uh, on Sunday night, we focused on chapter 1, did we not? Okay, good, everyone remembers that? That's, that's, a po- that's a positive thing, everyone remembers that, okay. And, do what? The key, the key elements, yes. And what did we really focus on? Like, like by, I mean, I know we didn't finish every single thing in the chapter. We came really, really close. The one last thing we needed to look at really was uh, the last nation and when that judgment occurred. We're not going to do that. I'm going to leave that for other people to work on. Um, we may, I may come back to it in a different broadcast, but I don't think it'll be anything major significant. But what was our major kind of takeaway from Amos chapter 1? Okay. Yeah, that was the main thing I really want us to remember, is that when we look at life, when we look at reality, right, we see events occur, right? We see events happening, we see events occurring, whether it's a natural disaster, whether it's war, whether it's famine, whether whatever the case may be, and we have a tendency, especially when it's bad, uh, to kind of just say, well, those are... Just the circumstances of life, we live in a fallen world, and we almost, in a roundabout way, remove God from it. But what Amos chapter 1 clearly indicates is all the bad things happening to these nations that was going to happen to these nations, who was the one? It was God. And what's the key phrase that we found mentioned numerous times? I will, I will, I will. It is God who's bringing the judgment. It is God who's bringing it about. And we see that in Job, all those horrible things that happened to Job. God was really, you can say, well, someone else was doing it. Yes, but who instigated it and who allowed it to happen? God, because God was in in control of the situation. So it's almost impossible to ever remove God from these situations. So we spent a lot of time talking about that. Now, there's some other things we could do in chapter 1, but we're going to do tonight just because um, I'm constantly changing it up for the Bible study exercises. I'm getting people to work through these books because they already have the steps to use for the, uh, the comprehensive book Bible study method. So they're already using that. So for everyone listening online and anyone else, what we're going to do tonight is we're going to go to the curriculum uh, that we have, and we're just going to use the curriculum tonight to see how they handle Amos chapter 2, starting in around verse 4. Of course, we will expand it uh, and not just go with the curriculum. We will expand it a little bit, at least look at the beginning of the chapter. And then when we get to verse 4, I'll just transition straight into the curriculum. So anyone listening online who has access to the curriculum, you can pull, pull it up and you can follow along. But we will, we will work through it and see what direction they go. Now, before we get to the curriculum... Just, uh, just so that you know this, the curriculum, the curriculum, like most Bible study curriculums, they always tend to look at it more, much more from a, like, here's the topic we want you to get, and then they kind of go to the text to try to find that topic. We'll, we will follow what they say, but you know at any point I can deviate and do whatever I feel we need to do, whatever the text says. So let's go back to, let's go back to the book of Amos, and we'll go to Amos chapter 2, and, uh, well, we'll see what we can discover. In fact, what we'll do, I will use the curriculum here because I think they do at least try to provide some context. I'll just read how they provide context here because I think it's interesting. Their outline of the book is somewhat interesting as well, um, but I won't go through that because all, all of this could lead me to you know hours of, con- of 
discussion. But it says, understand the context. So I'll give us a little bit of the context here. And most of this you should know because we've already covered all of this. Amos was was from the small village of... Tekoa. And where is that located? Does anybody know? In a proximity? Well, it's about, yeah, very good. Uh, they say 10 miles south of Jerusalem. I think we had other resources that said around 6 miles, but somewhere near Jerusalem, south of Jerusalem. The land there is barren and useful only for herding sheep and desert vegetation. And it's not surprising that before God called Amos to preach, the prophet was a shepherd. Uh, the name Amos means a load or a burden, which aptly describes the burden he carried for the people of God. Though Amos was from which kingdom? Uh, uh, the, the southern kingdom, kingdom of Judah. God would call him to go preach to? And the? North. All right, very good. He began his prophecy with warning signs of judgment against Israel's neighbors. He chastised who are some of the people he speaks against in chapter 1? Who are some of the nations? Damascus. Okay, Damascus for attacking the people of Gilead. He announced the sins of Gaza, who handed over a community of God's people to Edom. Amos spoke against Tyre for the same crime as Gaza, but also indicated they had broken a treaty with the people of God. Edom also received a warning because they had conducted border raids on Judah and exterminated, exterminated, exterminated its citizens. Like Damascus, the Ammonites had attacked the people of God in Gilead, and their attack was especially violent. Amos also gave a warning to one other nation, which should lead us right to tonight, chapter 2. Who's the nation mentioned in chapter 2? Moab, right? So, let's go to chapter 2, because that gives us the context to where we are, does it not? Okay. Amos chapter 2. Verse 1. Everybody ready to see what we can at least accomplish tonight? Here we go. Amos chapter 2, verse 1. Thus saith the Lord, for three transgressions of Moab and for four, I will not turn away the punishment thereof, because the burden, because he burned the bones of the king of Edom into lime, but I will send a fire upon Moab, and it shall devour the palaces of Kiriath, and Moab shall die with tumult, with shouting, and with the sound of the trumpet. And I will cut off the judge from the midst thereof, and will slay all the princes thereof with him, saith the Lord. So, let's just do this quickly. Go ahead and look up Moab in a Bible dictionary, and see what we can find about when this possible, when this judgment occurred. Page 850. So 735 uh, Assyrians. Uh, the Arabs come in when? 650 BC. 650 BC. Okay. Is that all the information? Jerusalem was destroyed by the Babylonians in 586 Okay. But it sounds like their destruction happens between 735 and 650. All right. Of course, what, that, that all comes after Amos makes the prophecy. 
Right? Okay, so make sure we have that. So we, we've looked at that. They go on to say this. Uh, Amos prophesied in a time of economic prosperity and many of the people in Israel's capital, Samaria, had become very wealthy. Furthermore, it was a time of military superiority for the northern kingdom since Jeroboam was able to lead his troops to victories over their neighboring enemies and expand their borders. Their victories brought an economic boom which led many to believe the prosperity to be a sign of God's good pleasure. However, they were mistaken and said God had taken had God, instead, God had taken pity on them despite their wickedness. What resulted was a great deal of religious activity in Israel that replaced sincere devotion to God with insincere religiosity. They failed to see their sin and need to repent. They thought that they were right with God when they were far from Him. They had become as wicked as the pagan nations surrounding them. All right, now couple of things here before we get more into chapter 2. A couple of things. Just some concepts to throw out. Because I always find it somewhat interesting when you kind of listen to the Christian world and listen to people talk. So let's, let's just kind of put the context back here. In chapter 1, we have Amos pronouncing judgment against all of these pagan nations, right? And we see all the horrible things that they had done. The curriculum points out Israel basically becomes as wicked as the pagan nations, which is a common theme in the Bible, right? God's people living and acting like the pagans, right? Over and over. By the time we get to the New... You say, that's just an Old Testament thing. That is ridiculous, because as soon as we get to 1 Corinthians, what do we find? God's people. In fact, they're doing things so bad that he said wasn't even named among the Gentiles, right? They were doing things that were so bad. So that means God's people always have this problem. But so many times the way Christianity is sold is that when we, we become a Christian, that never happens. But it's the common thing that happens. It's the natural thing that happens. And why is it always the natural thing that God's people live like those in the world. Why does it happen over over and 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 over again? Why is it? What's what's the simple answer? We still have the sin nature. Christianity does not remove the sin nature, even though preachers preach that it does. It doesn't. You can convince yourself sooner or later, doesn't it always manifest itself in the church? It manifests itself in the church, it manifests itself where? in the home, and it manifests itself in Israel over and over and over. So that just keep that in mind. Because I like the fact that they even acknowledge, hey, Israel becomes just as bad as the nations. And don't they do that constantly? All right, so keep that in mind. Number two, Amos is going to prophesy to people during a time of what kind of economic situation? Good, prosperous, abundant. I find that interesting. <laughs> because Christians, I see Christians do this all the time. If our country is going through major economic upheaval, right? If we're in recession, the stocks crash, whatever the case may be, Christians will, especially, and this all depends on who's in office. If it's Democrats in office, then Christians will say, see, God is judging America. This is happening because we are so ungodly and we're horrible. If a Republican's in office and the economy is good, then God is blessing us. What does this demonstrate once again? What does Amos demonstrate? That 
uh, economic prosperity does not determine whether God is blessing you or not. They, all right, did you, does everybody understand what I'm saying? Y'all looked a little confused there, right? So for many Christians, if the economy goes bad and Democrats are in office, it'll be like God is bringing judgment upon us. If the economy is good and Republicans are in office, then somehow God is blessing us. It, the economic blessing does not determine whether God is for us or against us. Does everybody understand that? Okay? Because, because here... They are economic. Not only are they military, not only are they economically prosperous. What else are they? Militarily victorious. Mil- being victorious in battle and being financially prosperous does not prove God is on your side or that everything is going wonderful. Okay, it can mean you're a million miles outside of the will of God. Don't we have a tendency that when things go bad in our life, what do we have a tendency to think? What do we do? I'm doing something wrong. Doesn't mean that. Did jo- was Job doing anything wrong? No. He was perfect, upright. What happened? Destruction, pain, suffering. So I want to make sure we get these principles down that over and over, God's people end up living like the ungodly. And number two, economic prosperity and military victory does not prove that God is on your side and that you're somehow living a godly life. These are like key principles that we should get over and over in Amos. He's going to people that are prosperous, but they are completely outside of the will of God. They've abandoned the true God. They're they're worshiping a golden calf. So th- this is so important that, that we, we get, if we don't get this down, I, I don't know, I think we just end up all kinds of, all kinds of problems, okay? So, now, this is what they're going to do. So now I'm going to back up. There's their context, but I'm going to back up to how they introduce this, all right? So, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to see if you, can, if you can figure this out. I think I've kind of given you too much away, but always remember, whatever I look at, especially study guide, it doesn't matter. I'm always analyzing everything, especially if they use pictures, because pictures are not placed in study guides for their... <laughs> hey, we just need to take up space. They almost symbolize something. So, this is session one, and they, they skip uh, Amos chapter one in the study guide, but they start with Amos chapter two. And guess, can anybody guess what the picture is? What do you think? No. It's, it's basically when you get in your car and you look at the, like the control panel where the speed limit is and all of that, or sp- the, not speed limit, the sp- speedometer, if I can speak correctly, right? All of your, all your uh, display, yeah, all your instrument panel. There you go, instrument panel. That's what I was trying to say. All right, see, I don't know anything about cars. I'm like, it's, it's that thing right there. I don't know what it is, okay? But that's the picture. Now, why do you think they would show that? What, uh, what else shows up on that instrument panel other than your speed? Ah, oh, there we go. Caution lights. And they've got a bunch of them here. They've got the airbag system light on. They've got the, an exclamation point. I don't know what that stands for. Maybe your tire pressure. Maybe. Okay, they got uh, the doors open. Uh, they got the oil light, battery light, engine light, uh, a seatbelt light, 
And maybe there's another airbag thing going on there. Okay, so they got them all on. Say, I, well, I don't know what they're. I don't know what they are. I'm like, whatever. Okay, so I guess. And right underneath that, guess what they have? Listen to God. Now you could. Now you see why the picture is there, right? What is it symbolizing? Warnings. And what are you going to do? With those warnings. And then underneath that, this is what they have. God's judgment awaits all who ignore him and his truth. Then they have Amos 2, 4 4 through 16. We'll read it in a minute. And then this is what they say. Automobiles have all kinds of warning lights built into the dash. Okay, I guess I could call it the dash display, right? What's the correct title for it? I don't know. Okay. Instrument panel, dash, whatever, okay? That thing that has lights on it, okay? Though the lights are helpful, the driver must still pay attention to the warnings. Noticing the maintenance light does not automatically change the oil. The warnings are calls to action, The minor prophets acted as dashboard lights for the people of Israel and Judah. They signal warnings of impending judgment, but it was up to the people to listen to God. Now, they asked two kind of questions to get you thinking in this direction. Now, the same approach could apply to chapter 1, right? It could. Now, the only difference is chapter 1 was words to whom? Yeah, now, this is, now, someone brought this up Sunday night, and I think it may have been Stephen, and we didn't have time to really dive into this. Maybe Bobby brought it up. Go back to chapter 1 really quick. Go back to chapter 1. And obviously in chapter 1, we have all of these words to nations, but look at the very beginning, because someone brought this up. Look carefully at who it says he is speaking to. Okay, what he saw concerning Israel. Does it say anything else about that? Someone brought something up about this. Okay. I don't know which one of you, but one of you mentioned something like this. So, if these are the words, or if these are what he saw concerning Israel, then how does the judgment upon all of these nations concern Israel? Right? So, we could look and go, well, some of these things these nations are guilty of, they did this against, against Israel, right? That, that is possibly important, yes, okay? That, that would make sense. But then another thing could be that he saw this judgment concerning Israel, and maybe it means that, they, that all of it, he's starting and pronouncing this judgment because this judgment to these nations was still for Israel, Hey, this judgment against the nations are still for you. Because what could it possibly be telling Israel? It could be a warning. Yeah, that God, if God is just, because listen, if you hear that God is, quote unquote, now, now I know in our minds, we don't always know when God is, ju- I mean, like everyone thought God was judging Job and he wasn't, right? But if you see someone else fall, or if you see someone else to fall into sin, it's usually not the time to point the finger at them and go tell everyone. It's usually a moment for you to go, oh man, what am I doing? It's usually a moment for you to check yourself. Right? I mean, right? It should be. So when you're hearing all these other nations are being judged, it may be going, wait guys, are we much better than them? Right? 
So, so in a roundabout way, chapter 1 and chapter 2 is kind of the warning lights. It's kind of the warning lights. Now, here are the questions they ask that I want us to consider. At least the second one, maybe more than the first. All right, here we go. What are some reasons drivers ignore their dashboard warnings? Now, some of you may not ignore the dashboard warnings. Okay. Okay. <laughs> oh, okay. All right. Let's go through these. All right, Sarah, you write these down. Okay. Why do we? Why do we ignore the check the, the warning lights on our dashboard? Okay. What What are our reasons? Okay. Stephen said you had one on for eighty thousand miles. Okay. That's that may indicate that they're really not that serious. Okay. So I don't know if anyone needs to hear that one. Okay. Hey, if you have a warning light in your car tonight, just don't worry about it. Eighty thousand miles later, everything will still be good. All right. So what was your reason for ignoring it? It didn't seem serious. Okay, oh, I like that. Uh, it didn't seem serious. It's just a light on the dashboard. How serious could it be? Okay. All right. What's another reason we make? I think Bobby said one. Time. I mean, look, I gotta, I gotta call, make an appointment, then I gotta take the car t- somewhere, get it checked, and then, okay. So time. What's another? That even if they tell me what's wrong, I may not have the money to pay for it. So what difference does it make? Okay. Hey, your car is going to blow up in 30, 30 miles. Well, I better get 20 miles out of it because I don't have the money to pay for it. Okay, inconvenient, time, all right? Any other possible reason? Okay, well... I, I, would th- I, would, I would hope you would think that the warning light would apply to you since it's your car, okay? What would be another reason? Another reason we would ignore it. Come on, Sarah, you've got to have one. Oh, okay. Well, is that, I, I, I know I'm not supposed to say this because, you know, this, this goes against being a man. But, you know, t- to be honest, half the time I don't even know what they mean or care, okay? So I think sometimes ignorance can get in the way. Okay, well, because that's something you can do. So I think maybe that... <laughs> okay, so, but I think maybe, I think ignorance is a possible reason, don't you think? I mean, come on, there's got to be, I'm going to make sure and check here, um, because uh, I think some people just don't even pay attention. I think sometimes you're like, hey, that light's been on for, you know, did, did you notice the engine light? Oh, I didn't know what, I didn't know what that, either it's ignorance or I didn't even notice it. I, I never pay attention. I mean, I don't really pay attention that much, but. I didn't think it was important. There's lots of reasons there. But all of them are somewhat likened to the next question. Because what do you think the next question is going to be? What do you think the next question is going to be? Well, the next question they have for us, because they just used that question just to kind of get us thinking in regards to Amos. The next question is, why are some reasons Christians ignore God's warning? Or you could ask... We could add a, a second, we could add one. Why do you think Israel and Judah ignored God's warning? So, why is it do you think God's people, we'll just say it that way, ignores God's warnings? 
Oh, okay. We're not so quick to answer this one. We're quick with the car one. But this one, we're like, ah, I don't know about this one. You see what they're trying to do? They're trying to, is there a similarity? Okay, I think we can go, okay, there, there's a lot of directions we could go here. I'm going to go with the ignorance one, because a lot of people are just ignorant of what scriptures actually say, so then how do they know the warning? Now, in this particular case, the prophet was coming and telling them, right? So they definitely knew, okay? So what are some other reasons God's people seem to ignore God's warnings? What are some other reasons? I, we, we just wrote down a bunch of reasons about the car, the, the uh, warning, warning lights. Okay, remember what Stephen said about the, uh, the engine light? If the engine seems to be running fine, I mean, obviously you went 80,000 miles. Well, if you look around, you're like, hey, who is this crazy guy out there saying, judgment is coming! And you're like, I got money in my pocket. The crops are good. We're defeating our enemies. Clearly God's on my side, buddy. Look at you. Okay, you're from where? Tacoa? Okay, like, who are you? So, that that can mean that we just, everything seems fine, so why am I worried about it? Sometimes we, this is is very important. Sometimes we can be dismissive of future judgment because of present prosperity or present blessing. Hey, if everything's going good in your life now, why are you worried about some possible judgment coming tomorrow? Agreed? Agreed? What are some other reasons we may ignore it? Well, I think in this case, now this, not, not, this one doesn't work for the car light, but it works for, for this. We just don't think it's applicable. I don't think it, it can't apply to me. I mean, we always have a way of thinking that we're okay. Remember we talked about that in Jude? Those false teachers who came in. I'll give you an ex- example. If you heard the podcast, Juanita Bynum, Right? This preacher, teacher, right? She is doing a prayer institute to teach people how to pray. You're going to get a total of 14 hours of teaching, right? Because she's going to do seven two-hour sessions, I believe. A total of 14 hours of teaching. You're going to meet every, I think, Thursday night. Juanita Bynum in Atlanta, Georgia, she's going to teach you to pray. You're going to get that. Learn to really pray right. And guess how much it costs to attend these 14 hours of teaching? $1,499.99. Yeah, $1,500. And that's a discount because it was going for $2,000. Now, some could say, clearly, she's a liar, she's deceptive, she's doing it on purpose. But there's a possibility she really thinks she's doing the work of God and she's right to do what she's doing. Right? So, the point, the, what, the, the reason I'm using that as an illustration is, so many times we don't think judgment is coming because we think we're in the right. We're, we're okay. We, we sometimes cannot see, look, if, if present, think about it this way, if present prosperity, right, causes us to be blind to future judgment, then guess what? Our present perception 
can blind us to future judgment because we think we're okay. In other words, if, our, if prosperity, if present prosperity can blind us because we look around and look, well, well, obviously I'm doing everything right. So then our present perception is, I'm okay with God. And Israel must have felt that they were okay with God, at least that that seems to be. Uh huh. Right. Right. And that would be the present perception. If your present perception is what you're doing is not that bad, then 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 you're not going to see the future judgment. So I think present prosperity and present perception can make us blind to future judgment. And I think it's always a danger for everyone, all right? So, they want us to look at Amos chapter 2, verses 4 through 8. Amen. I cannot believe we're already at 740. Oh, man, okay. We did not get very far. Okay. All right, that's okay. All right, here we go. Amos chapter 2, starting in verse 4. Verses 1 through 3 was all about what? Moab. And we figured out when that occurred. We think we have a pretty good idea. Yes, the Assyrians and Arabs came in, and yeah, we have all of that. All right, now, what do they want us to see about Amos 2, 4 through 8? I'm just going to read it here. Thus saith the Lord, for three transgressions of Judah, and for four I will not turn away the punishment thereof. Remember, that three transgressions and four means not just for three, not just, no, in other words, he can keep counting. Not just for seven, not just for ten. Hey, it, there's, you've got so many things wrong, I could name, I could just name things all day long, okay? Right? And then he says, I will not turn away the punishment thereof, because they have, dis-. and remember, this is for which nation? Judah. This is for Judah. This is for Judah, all right? And have not kept his commandments. I'll say, right, let, me go, let me go through this again. Because they have despised the law of the Lord and have not kept his commandments, and their lies caused them to err, after the which their fathers have walked. But I will send a fire upon Judah, and it shall devour the palaces of Jerusalem. Thus saith the Lord, for, the, uh, for three trans... Okay, no, we'll stop right there. We don't want to go to Israel yet. We go to Judah. All right. So, what is the issue with Judah? What have they done wrong here? They have despised the law of the Lord and have not kept his commandments. Right? And so judgment is going to come. All right? The next nation is Israel. Uh, verse 6, Thus saith the Lord, for three transgressions of Israel, and for four I will not turn away the punishment thereof. Now what have they done? Because they have sold the righteous for silver and the poor for a pair of shoes. They pant after the dust of the earth on the head of the poor and turn aside the way of the meek. And a man and his father will go in unto the same maid to profane my holy name. And they laid themselves down upon clothes, laid to pledge by every altar, and they drink the wine of the condemned and the house of their God. Israel's got a number of things going on. Judah is very much more general, Right? Judah, it's simply they have stopped following what? The law. Israel, there's a number of specific ones. A number of specific ones. So let's, there's probably a lot we could pull out here, but let's just see how far we can get into the curriculum. All right, everybody ready? After listing the sins of the other nations, 
the prophet turned his attention to his own people and the southern kingdom of Judah. Using the familiar formula for three transgressions of Judah and for four, Amos began to list the indictments against Judah. All these indictments, unlike the previous ones made against the other nations, were judged against the fact that Judah had received direction from God and chose to disobey. The other nations were judged by their crimes against humanity, but Judah received judgment for unfaithfulness to the covenant of God found in the Hebrew Scriptures. That is interesting. The other nations, hey, you did all of these horrible things to other people, and Judah, you abandoned God's law, which... You can see why, why, would the, why would he go to Judah or to Israel about abandoning God's law because they're, quote-unquote, God's people. Correct? In other words, for us, our judgment is not based off just a, a general morality. It's based specifically off the word of God, if that makes some sense. There's a lot we could get into there and how to understand all of that, but okay. The Israelites, like Christians today, were held to a higher moral standard of conduct because they had heard and received the law of the Lord. The statement that their lies caused them to err after the which their fathers have walked indicated that people, that indicated the people for returning to their old ways prior to their knowledge of God. They were living like pagan nations around them. So once again, you have God's people who have God's law, okay, who do what? Turn from this, turn from this, I was going to drop it, and then I realized I wasn't near the, uh, the pew, right? They have God's word, in a sense, they close it, and they do what? They go to, the, uh, to act like the other nations around them. Now, this is, this is obviously a common problem. Right? This is a cop. I mean, doesn't Israel do this over and 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 over? Can we all agree that they do? All right. So now I know this is not the point of Amos, but I want to bring this up. I want to bring this up because I think it's important. Right? Because we we know. uh, Well, we've already looked at some other principles, but I at least want us to kind of flesh this one out. Christianity, throughout its history has had a kind of a very specific philosophy to really sin. And it typically sounds something like this, that the problem for the Christian is everything external to the Christian. Right? So in other words, someone would preach this and say, what was the problem for Judah? Like, how, how would this would be typically preached? What was the problem for Judah? Okay, let, let, me read, let, me, let me read that statement again because they tell you right there in the curriculum. Because let me read this again because I think it's important. The statement that their lies caused them to err after, which, after the which their fathers have walked indicated that the people, that the people, I'm sorry, indicted the people for returning to their old ways prior to their knowledge of God. They were living like the pagan nations around them. Now, based off that statement, how would that typically be preached? What would have been the problem for Judah? The extern- the, not, it, the focus would have been on the nations around them. So then it's typically preached that what's the danger for you and what's the danger for me? Everything around us. 
so that we as Christians, we have to be extremely careful because everything around us can cause us to trip and to fall and to be destroyed. What, what is so maddening to me, what's so maddening to me about the Christian world is on one hand, on one Sunday you come to church and you get this kind of sermon. You are a Christian. You've been set free from the power of sin. You're indwelt by the Holy Spirit. You have the power. You can say yes to God. You can say no to sin. You're a new creature in Christ. Old things have passed away. All things have become new. You will be different. You have been transformed. You have been changed. And then everybody's like, amen, 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 amen. The next Sunday, hey, you better be careful because those nations make you fall just like that. Now, how do you preach those both sermons? If I have all of this power and been set free, how can nations around me cause me to fall or stumble? Isn't he that he that is in me is greater than he that is in the world? Well, then how can the how can other people cause me to stumble or fall? Isn't it weird how we, that those same sermons can be preached in the same church to the same people and the people will say amen to both and no one raises their hand and go, I think we have a contradiction. I, I think Christians are incapable of seeing contradictions sometimes. I don't know how you can't, I'd be like, wait a minute. I shouldn't have to worry about things around me. I've got all this power in me. I've been transformed. I've been changed. But what do we know over and over and over about all the supposed change we preach? What Christians typically do is end up living like the world. So here's the question. What's the real problem? Because here's what I know. You've witnessed it. I've witnessed it. Have you not seen people raised in a Christian home that were kept from everything? See no evil. Hear no evil, speak no evil, do no evil is almost the mentality, right? We're going to get rid of that television. You're not going to go to a public school. You're going to be homeschool. You're not going to get that job with those kids doing drugs. You're, we're going to protect. You're going to be in church. You're going to be in youth group. And you can get a youth group full of those kinds of kids. And guess what you find out in that youth group? They could probably teach the kids in the world a few things. Why? How did it happen? Okay, well, let, let, let's just make it very blunt so we get this. The problem is always inside of us. The problem never leaves us. Okay? The, we build the walls we can lock the doors. We can get the security guards. But the, the killer is inside. It's us. Right. Yeah, right, right. It's already present. It's already present in the kids. Yeah, I mean, yeah, I mean, from conception. It's just, yeah, you can't, it's there. 
And, 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 and people say, so you're just saying, let everything in. No, what I'm saying is, you have to start with the concept, the problem is right there. The problem isn't the other kid, it's your kid. The problem isn't Netflix, it's your kid. The problem isn't Hollywood, it's, the problem isn't Disney, it's your kid. And oh, forget your kid, it's you, <laughs> it's me. So, so everyone, we have a tendency to go, man, Judah and those pagan nations. Those pagan nations. They, 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 would, they would have sinned in their own way. Did, did, did Cain have pagan nations to influence him? Okay. And guess what? Oh, what happened? He had his righteous brother whom he killed. So where was, was he? Was he listening to the wrong music? Was, was he watching the wrong TV shows? Playing the wrong video games? Like, it's weird how Christians on one hand, we believe in depravity, but then we believe all sin is the cause of something external to us. So what caused, ultimately, what caused Judah to, to fall to the pagan nations? They turned from God's law. Read, read the text. And it, they turned from God's law, which caused them to err, right? Okay. Well, what caused them to turn from God's law? Their own self. Their own self. I, 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 just, I, I don't understand where Christians have such a hard time with this concept. And I've been talking about it a lot on podcasts because it just drives me crazy. So... So I want you to understand that. And then God promised to bring, oh, we're almost out of time. God bring judgment on Judah by sending fire and consuming the palaces of Jerusalem, the capital city of Judah. By virtue of their relationship with God, Judah was expected to live a life of obedience that reflected his character. All right? Now, okay, well, they, they, I'm going to just go on to verse 6. Okay, go, go, go back to Amos chapter 2, verse 6. We've already read it once. You can just look at it. Amos chapter 2, he goes from Judah. Now, now who does he go to? Israel. All right? Yeah, he has a lot to say about Israel. All right. And what's the first thing that he, he, he says after he gives the formula? For uh, thus saith the Lord, thus saith the Lord, for three transgressions of Israel, and for four, I will not turn away the punishment thereof, because they sold the righteous for silver and the poor for a pair of shoes. Right? What in the world is going on here? Israel had heard the sins of the surrounding nations. Now it was time for Amos to address their own sins. As God would judge Judah, he would also judge Israel. The first wrong listed was the sale of the innocent and needy into slavery. The righteous incurred no debt that led them to slavery, yet the Israelites enslaved innocent people. The poor were sold into slavery for the price of a pair of shoes. Slavery, though widely practiced in that day, was obviously a means Israel used to oppress people while at the same time increasing their own wealth. It was an offense to God. So, there's, there's a, so a couple of issues here. The first, who is the first group? Of, what's the first thing it says before it talks about the poor? Uh, they sell the righteous, they sell the righteous for silver. Okay, they sell the righteous for silver and the, and the needy or the poor for a pair of shoes. 
So they're taking, so basically this demonstrates a complete lack of compassion or concern for people and they're using people or selling people for their own personal gain. Which demonstrates a total evil, self-centered mentality even amongst God's people. All right? Now, Let's do this just quickly. I don't know if we have time. If you have uh, the Blue Letter Bible or, uh, or Concordance, look up the word poor. And how many times is the poor mentioned in Amos? How many times? Seven times poor is mentioned. All right, let's go through each reference really quick. All right, let's go through each reference. Where's the first one? Is in chapter two, correct? Okay, which is the one we just read. Okay, where they sold the poor for a pair of shoes. The second reference is verse seven, where they do what? They pant after the dust of the earth on the head of the poor. That's an interesting phrase, is it not? How's the NIV translate verse 7? Okay, they trample on the heads of the poor. Now, they pant after, seems like they're, it, this is a, probably maybe a, a, a textual issue back and forth. Uh, let's see if they, if they uh, it says, um, a true measure of a person is how they treat the weaker or less powerful. And Israel failed the test. The picture of those who are not poor, uh, the picture of those who were not poor pushing the head of the poor into the dirt is how they described it. So they, they basically are pushing the poor down, using the poor, stepping on the poor. Or yeah, there, There's a lot of different ways we could go with that. All right, the next one. Chapter 4, verse 1. Hear the word, ye, ye kind of Basham, that are in the mountains of Samaria, which oppress the poor, which crush the needy, which say to their masters, bring and let us drink. All right? So once again, they don't care about anyone needy. They don't care about anyone. They're using them. Next. 5.11. For as much, therefore, as your treading is upon the poor, and you take from him burdens of wheat, you have built houses of hewn stone, but you shall not dwell in them. You have planted pleasant vineyards, but you shall not drink wine of them. Next. Verse 12. For I know your manifold transgressions and your mighty sins. They afflict the just. They take a bribe and they turn aside the poor in the gate from their right. Next. 8.12. Hear this, O ye that swallow up the needy, even to make the poor of the land to fail. All right. Is there one more? Eight six. That we may buy the poor for silver and the needy for a pair of shoes, yea, and sell the refuge of the wheat. Okay. Any, is that it? That's it. Now. We don't have time to get into this, but I've mentioned this in the podcast, and I'm going to mention it again. 
there, I, there, it's very interesting. And, and in some ways, what should occur is that all Christians should be forced by law, okay? If, we, if, I, could, if I was the Pope of all of Christendom, I would have uh, everyone go through the entire Bible from Genesis to Revelation and read everything uh, the Bible says about the poor and how God's people should treat them. And the reason I say that is I started watching this happen in the 1990s. I cannot say if it happened prior to this, but I saw a drastic thing begin to happen in the 90s. Okay, so I can't tell you what Christianity was like in the 80s along this specific topic. Okay, because I wasn't I was I was still young. I was still young trying to figure it out. Okay, and so I didn't I didn't hear as many Christian men talk. But once I get to the to the 1990s, I'm not I'm not the teenager anymore. Right now I'm in the military, so I'm hearing the adults, and I noticed that there was a major thing happening within popular culture. A certain radio program would come on every day between eleven and what two p.m. And millions upon millions upon millions of people were listening to this radio program every day during their lunchtime, whatever. And that program was Rush Limbaugh. Okay? Rush Limbaugh was extremely talented in what he did. I listened to him all the time. Didn't always agree with his politics, but it didn't matter. He could sit three hours behind that microphone and keep you intrigued and keep you listening, whether you liked it, whether you liked what he said or not, right? He didn't even need people to call in. He didn't need to do interviews, just three hours in front of the microphone. I was always super impressed by his ability to do that versus the other talk shows where they always had to talk to people. Rush Limbaugh just talked himself. It was amazing, okay? Loved it. I loved that, just his talent on that. But he obviously had a very specific ideology, right? A very conservative, very Republican ideology. And starting in the 1990s, I would hear sometimes men within Christendom, men within the Christian church, and they started sounding more like Rush Limbaugh than Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John. They started sounding more like Rush Limbaugh than they did Amos, or they did the Bible. And, I would, and it was always Christian men, because I don't think Christian women were listening to Rush Limbaugh, but it seemed to be Christian men. And I would always get sometimes frustrated with, wait a minute, guys, our marching orders don't come from Rush Limbaugh. Right? He may be entertaining to listen to, but I'm not supposed to be acting like Rush Limbaugh. I'm supposed to be spending more time studying my Bible than I am studying Rush Limbaugh. Now, you can listen to him all day. I don't care. But you better be making sure that your thinking is formed by this. And so you would hear Christian men at times speak about the poor or speak about the needy, and it didn't sound biblical. It sounded Republican. We don't get our ideas about the poor from the Republican Party or the Democratic Party. We're supposed to get it from the Word of God. And, and, and so Christian men, they, 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 they're about the only verse I think they knew about the poor is, well, Jesus says the poor will always have with you, so not our problem, and if a man doesn't work, he doesn't eat. That seemed to be the only two verses they knew about the entire subject. I'm like, I think the Bible has a whole lot to say about the subject. There were specific laws in Israel about it, yes? There were civil laws in Israel. Okay, about what to do. But anybody pr- propose a, a similar law in America, they're like, that's liberalism, that's socialism, down with it. 
Okay? And I'm like, well, how should we think about it? So I'm saying that what we find here in Amos is Israel gets indicted and gets condemned for their treatment of the poor more than once. It's, the, the poor is mentioned, how, you said eight times? Seven times. Seven times. I think that's significant. And the reason I think it's significant is because it's often overlooked. So I've already told people online to do this, and we will work on this the next time we're in Amos. What we're going to do is we're going to just try to figure out everything Amos has to say about the poor and look at each one and try to figure out exactly what they're doing wrong. All right? But I would challenge everyone to just look up all the verses in the Bible about the poor or about the needy or about the destitute and just to check to see if you have the right mentality because this is what I would contrast it with and I'll end with this. We have those in society who are economically poor. Agreed? Okay. We always must see those who are economically poor through the lens of our own poverty. Because we are all poor before whom? God. We are beggars. We're, we're homeless beggars with no money. With nothing. And how did God treat us? Saved us. Delivered us. So we, that should at least give us a, a different way of thinking in regards to it. And then you take everything the Bible has to say about it. Remember, the Bible, we start, here's where it always starts. If you see someone poor, that, that, that don't, they're not your enemy, they're just poor, right? Where does the Bible start with? We're supposed to love even our enemy. So if we're supposed to love our enemy, I would think the poor person, unless they've done something to you, is at least a step above your enemy, right? So if you're supposed to, so how, what does that look like for the church? Now I understand it's a never-ending, it's a never-ending problem. Like poverty and the poor, there's no easy fixes. So nobody can say that it's easy. And, 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 and I know it's difficult because on one hand, the world, they will look and go, wait a minute, wait a minute. Just take the uh, First Baptist Church in Dallas, Texas, right? That sanctuary, that, their campus, I would have to look up. It cost millions millions of dollars for that campus. It was in all the newspapers how expensive their campus was. It was insane. I've done podcast about it. Well, when the world looks at that, they're like, so there's a church that has like a hundred million dollar sanctuary when there's poverty all over Dallas. Now, some people say, well, that's not fair. I understand that's not necessarily fair, but you can see where that criticism would come. Because sometimes you see these large churches and you're like, what are you doing? And then if you're a small church, you know we're limited in what we can do. Right? We're limited. Now, you would think if we got more money, we would do more. But then at the same time, you also know that you can throw money, 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 money after poverty. And what, it doesn't always fix the problem. I, I, I don't know. I listen to a lot of talk radio. But I've been hearing the same commercial on talk radio, I think since I was six, okay? No, I can't remember when it was first made, but it's a number of actors and famous people saying that this many children die every day from starvation or for a lack of drinking water. Those numbers are accurate, 
But then they, they ask you for donations to stop it. I'm like, well, you've been asking for donations for 20 years. I remember, you know, we are the world and all of the money raised for Africa. It didn't fix the problem. So how did, like, that's always the hard part, right? Like, we got to care for the poor, but what's the biblical answer when you can take all the money you can and throw it and throw it and throw it at the, and, and it doesn't fix the problem. Nobody obviously has the solution. But the one thing we should be able to do, and I'll end with this, is we should view the poor from a biblical perspective, seeing them first as human beings creating the image of God, who deserve compassion and mercy. And yes, can we always just hand money to everyone? We can't, right? Because one, we have limited resources. But two, sometimes you don't even, I mean, we've seen it here. I mean, look, there's no reason to beat around the bush. This should not be a condemnation against all that are poor. But we've been taking advantage here multiple times, right? We've, We've tried to help people. Now, what we always try to do is help until we figure out we're being taken advantage of, and then we'll have to do something about it. But, I mean, we have people walk in lots of times asking us for money. And sometimes I'm just like, of all the churches, you stopped here. Like, sometimes it's, it's, it's mind-boggling to me, right? I'm like, you got these churches with these nice sanctuaries, and you come by this little building in the middle of nowhere? Like, of all the... I remember the one... I think it was the last time. It was a guy, and he had that bank bag full of bills... And he's just going through and he picked the two that he wanted us to pay for. And I'm like, what in the world? Like, I, 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 wanted, to, I wanted to go show him the offering plate. There's no money here, buddy. I, 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 what, what do you want? I, but we tried to help. Now, the, the, we stopped on that one because the bill that he gave me did not match the name. There were so many problems with that thing. Something was... And then the number I called wasn't even to a business. I'm like, okay, we're not, we're not playing this game. Okay, But we always try to help. But you see that you can see that, that those kinds of things can make you what? Jaded, cynical, skeptical. And then what starts happening? What, what happens when we're jaded and cynical? Not going to help anybody. And then we have a tendency to view everyone who's needy in the same light. And it's hard not to, right? It's hard not to. Like, like um, when, I, when I would, especially when I had to go to work every day, I, sometimes it would be very hard for me when I get in my car and I'm driving to work or driving home from work and there's someone standing on the side with a sign asking for money. Because you're kind of like, look, I, well, sometimes I'm like, man, I've been at work all day and, and you just want me to hand you my, my money because then you start calling it into question. Well, then you'll get those those documentaries, datelines or whatever, and they'll show you, you know, hidden camera, the person begging for money, walking over to his $20,000 car, driving away, and, you're, and they follow him and then try to, and then come find out the person's not homeless, person's not anything. Well, you only have to see a couple of those before you're like, no, I'm not going to hand cash. So then you're like, okay, look, what do you need? I, then I may try to help you with your need. Now, in some cases, you realize that doesn't work because then they don't want your help, which then call, then even makes you more skeptical. The point is, we can become very jaded and very ungodly in our approach. 
And it's hard to maintain that balance. God's not messing with Israel and how they treat the poor because they get condemned for it multiple times. I mean, you've only got nine chapters. Israel doesn't even get mentioned in chapter 2. So from chapter 2 to chapter 9, the poor is mentioned seven times. <laughs> that's, a, that's a pretty good indicator that they've done something really wrong here. Yes? Right? To the poor. So I just think it's a big challenge for us to maintain a right biblical principle to it. A right biblical principle. And I'm not saying it's easy. I don't have the answers. Because I don't like being ripped off. I don't like people taking advantage. It makes me angry. Right? At the same time, I feel bad for people. So what do you do? I mean, I can't stop every time someone's standing on the street corner holding a sign saying, here's money, because you don't have a clue what's going on. So then you have to try to stop and figure it out. And then sometimes that turns into, that sometimes can make you even more angry because what happens? They sometimes don't want your help. And you know how angry that can make you. You're like, what in the world? And then then you just lose your mind. So it's hard to maintain the right spiritual mindset in light of it. That's hard. So on one hand, what... I'm not saying what Israel did is similar to that because they were selling people into slavery and they, they were going to step beyond. They weren't just like, hey, we're not going to help the poor. They were literally abusing and taking advantage of the poor. So th- I don't want to compare that to these struggles, but we do have a struggle of not viewing the poor from a biblical perspective. I'm assuming they are, yes. Yeah. Their own people, yeah. All right, let's pray. Lord God, we come before you this evening. A very just interesting book and chapter. Uh, so much to try to unpack. And uh, we, we definitely see their sins. But um, as Israel was guilty of following the countries around them, we're guilty of doing the same thing. And just as we can point the finger at Judah and Israel, well, we're guilty of many of their same sins and their same failures. So help us see ourselves and the failures of these other nations and in the nations of Israel and Judah because we constantly have a problem of following the other nations because we're just like them because of our depravity. And we ask this in Jesus' name. And God's people said...